This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu slash prehealth. Hello there, listeners. This is Dean Wirtz, and you are listening to Pen Pals, bringing Philadelphia's stories to you from a distance. And today we have Garrett Largoza, uh, first-year medical student at Jefferson uh, Medical School. And if you want to introduce yourself a little bit further and give some of your background, Garrett, go ahead. Sure thing. My name is Garrett Largoza. Nice to uh, talk to everyone, I guess. Uh, yeah, so my background, a little bit about me. I came from Franklin Marshall College out in Lancaster. I graduated there in 2018 uh, in biochemistry. Uh, from there, I want to explore medicine a little bit, get to explore my options and see if medicine's right for me. So I ended up applying to a bunch of different places and found a clinical research coordinator job in the ENT department at Penn. Uh, and one thing led to another. I ended up taking uh, night classes there and found myself in the uh, Penn Pre-Health post-bac, and now I'm here at Jeff. <laughs> awesome, and uh, at your time working in ENT, do you think that's something that you'd be interested in pursuing through medicine? Very much so. So my plan for medical school was to prepare myself for the things that interest me the most, and those things also happen to be the more competitive things, as you know you can expect. But um that should not hold you back uh, from what you actually want to pursue. So for instance, I'm interested in orthopedics, ENT, and cardiothoracic surgery, because those are the things that I've already been exposed to. And, you know, I'm going to prepare myself the most, the best I can for those specialties for my application. But if something else catches my eye along the way, then I'm not going to let that hold me back. That's awesome. And uh, real quick for the listeners, uh, ENT stands for ear, nose and throat doctor. And, uh, Cardiothoracic, if you want to get into that a little bit more. Talk about the exposures, you mean? I mean, I guess or, uh, cardiothoracic just in general usually has to do oh, okay. with uh, the heart. Right, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, I was going to leave that one for you, but you know what? Thank you for, you know, putting me on the pedestal there for a second. So, um, <laughs> it, it usually has to do with the workings of the heart and doing surgeries of the heart. Uh, I think, does it have to do with blood transfusions too? Or what, what is the scope of cardiothoracic? Uh, cardiothoracic, uh, you explained it pretty well for the first part, actually. It's just pretty much any procedure that goes on in the, you know, torso, essentially. And they primarily specialize in dealings with the heart. So things like bypasses and whatnot, that's a CT surgeon's job. And as you can probably expect, I'm very interested in procedural type of specialties. Yeah. And were you always that way? Like, did you know at a young age that you were interested in going into medicine? (laughs) Yeah, so my mom is a nephrologist, so I knew very early on I did not want to go into nephrology. That's too many numbers, too many people relying on you for, like, you know, getting the numbers right, getting the math right. Too much math for me. And could you tell uh, the listeners what nephrology is? No problem. Uh, Nephrology, that has to do with kidneys. So you're analyzing, like, how your kidneys are filtering things out, whether they're filtering them out correctly, and if they're not what seems to be the problem. And the kidneys are really essential for a lot of your body's functions. So you'll have a lot of interdisciplinary uh, communication with other people. 
So before you go into surgery, for instance, typically you'll talk to a nephrologist to see if their kidneys are good enough for surgery. Awesome. And uh, real quick, when, when you say the competitive fields, uh, to my understanding, usually has to do with the lifestyle that they permit and the amount of money that you make out of <laughs> getting out of uh, medical school, if you want to talk a little bit about that as well. Right. That's typically how pe- that's typically people's first thoughts. So uh, when you say competitive specialties, people think of orthopedics, plastic surgery, dermatology, because they have this type of, I guess you could say, cushy lifestyle. Um, I'm not sure if that's really how I would put it, but what I would say is that it's something that takes a lot of passion for. And, you know, it's not really something based on, uh, I don't think money should ever be the factor in it, you know? They're competitive because a lot of people really want this particular lifestyle, for instance. And uh, you have a lot of people applying, a lot of very qualified people applying for it. They are very involved in research. They're very involved in uh, even things like social media presence. I heard that you know, like they're going to be checking your Twitter accounts now to see if you're active. <laughs> so, you know, just a bunch of small things. That's awesome. And uh, do you think that, uh, like, what do you have going back to your, your inspiration medicine, your mom being a uh, nephrology do you have any like funny experiences with growing up of like, Oh, this is, this is pretty cool. Like, you know, like, Oh, someone got a cut. Let me put a bandaid on there. Wow. My life has changed. <laughs> well, I think I knew I wanted to go into medicine for just a bunch of different reasons. Just the idea the science, everything was very cool. And I love working with people, working with my hands and the general feeling of seeing people get better because of some, something you had involvement in is really cool. Uh, a defining moment was probably when I was on an airplane with my parents. Uh, I forget where we were going. I think it was like a Greece family vacation or something. And we actually had to, there was an emergency on the flight and uh, they asked if there was a doctor on board and my mom was able to help someone who was uh, very uh, anemic. And, you know, it really owes to the power of how uh, doctors have the power to bring planes down, you know, and, uh, good sense of the word I guess (laughs) Um, so that was one thing but I would say like the thing that sort of turns me away deters me from uh, nephrology is just like man it's all those numbers (laughs) I've been with my mom to a bunch of the dialysis clinics that she runs dialysis is you know where they uh, use machine to help filter your blood for you in the events that your kidney is failing and it's just I don't know if that's like the kind of environment I see myself working in got it yeah, that's thank you for also explaining uh, what dialysis is right off the bat. We're, we're learning. We're yeah, getting, I'm, I'm picking up on it. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, taking a step back for a minute, just talking about that kind of application process and figuring out how to get into medical school. I mean, what what was it like? Oh man, I feel like it's a completely different thing now. So I'm not sure how much I can speak to this year's applicants or even next year's applicants, but. I'm not going to sugarcoat it just to talk about the things that other people probably told you guys a bunch of times, your GPA, your extracurriculars, your MCAT, these are all definitely factors, right? But they're not going to make or break your application and do not let these things get in the way of your actual passions. For me, my passion was in fitness and endurance events. So I'm a triathlete and marathon runner. And I talked a lot about those in my personal statement and I really connected with my interviewer on triathlon. Primarily, he was like, 
can you really run or bike or swim 140.6 miles in a single day? And I was like, that's something people do. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say my advice there is to, if you have a passion, really try to find a way to explore that passion, see if you can use that to uh, explore ways of helping people show that you're a very, you know, show that you're a very people person, because when it comes down to it, they're not just going to look for 4.0, 5.28, like nature publications and whatnot. They're looking for a well-rounded person who can handle stresses in medical school. And so far it seems to be very high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you meeting people now or either online or how is the setting for you? Are you completely online? Are you going in for some classes? Yeah. So we started, uh, oh, when did we start? End of July, July 20th. And we had a two week period where, because we had people flying in from all over the country and whatnot, uh, we had a two week quarantine. And so zero in-person events for those two weeks. But afterwards we had in-person clinical skills. So we would go in and do blood pressure and things like that, talk to a standardized patient, though there were always like those uh, social distancing rules set in place. And we also have in-person for something called case-based learning. That is uh, for us, it's a group of 10 people, uh, six feet apart now, and uh, we're just discussing a uh, hypothetical case, I suppose. That's but really other cool. than that, everything is just virtual and learning from Zoom or Blackboard. It's just kind of crazy. Yeah, I can imagine that's nuts. And um, are you finding that you're getting to know your student body well and seeing their passions and what they're doing there? And Yeah, that's the thing. I I wish I had a baseline for that. I'm sure I would get to know these people a lot better if it weren't just through a computer. But I've had the pleasure of speaking to some of us meeting in very small groups outside of classes. And it's been really nice so far. You really get to meet some interesting people. And they, they always say that once you are a medical school student, that's all you are. Do you agree with that? Do you think that you still have a chance to be Garrett? (laughs) (laughs) I really, really, really try to stick with the things I really enjoy. So, you know, I I like to keep up with running and well, not so much swimming anymore because all the pools are closed and biking and things like that. But I'm not gonna lie, it is hard to keep up with medical school and uh, something that I guess would take up a lot of time usually that you would usually like to do. You still try to fit it in somehow, but I, w- I would say for the most part, I would agree with that. <laughs> I think that uh, running is a very interesting I mean, choice of what makes Garrett Garrett because <laughs> it, like you said, it's, it's time, but it's also the peripheral time of getting enough sleep to be able to do it and eating right. well enough to be able to do it. So you have those peripheral not time wasters, but time. Exactly. You, you should never think of them as time wasters. They, yeah. They're things that are going to make you a better person, like physically and, you know, physically at least mentally. You get a type of clarity from doing it all. It's just hard to fend off the guilt of, oh, I could be using this time running right now for studying. Um, <laughs> but it, it really is kind of interesting how uh, after our first two weeks, I think, we could talk about blisters for hours. And, um, you know, when I was running, I could think about, huh, I have a blister on my foot right now. I wonder what's going on. And you really just connect <laughs> all the dots. <laughs> does that help? That Does that help you when you're in your flow state mid-run to start thinking about blisters? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it did help me there because I sort of 
bullet pointed everything in my head. This is what's going on. And I go back home and then look it up. Is this what, you know, am I correct? Were there any flaws? And it works out. And uh, personally, I'm more into kind of drawing and doing kind of musical outlets and stuff like that. And I found that if you're able to do that and step away from your work, you're actually more effective in your work on coming back. Do you right. know about that? I agree with that 100%. It's just, once again, the guilt of uh, not <laughs> using all my time for studying. It really, but no, you're right. Um, I think you always come back with a clear mind once you just take a step away from things. You got to pull yourself away and do the things that will help your, help your mental wellness just overall. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And uh, taking a total 180 and transitioning, just kind of <laughs> the idea of as I've gone through the process, as I've seen other people, this whole idea is coming into my mind of there's so much time that goes into going on the road to becoming a doctor. And you have to think about what's the difference between just being someone who helps someone and being a doctor, you know? Right. So how do you, uh, very broad question, but. Yeah, I feel like we're getting onto like some kind of spiritual level. <laughs> <laughs> I do my um, best to, you know, throw in a little bit of spirituality. You know? <laughs> right. Um, I think you can help people in a lot of different ways. And so it's kind of hard because my mind just goes straight to doctor things here, but uh Education, you know, education is a really big part in what a clinician does for his or her patient. Uh, a lot of people enter your office and they haven't really been to a hospital before then, and they're seeing you for a specific problem that if they had followed up with this problem before, then they would have, you know, been better off. But I would say that uh, there's always a good chance for you to help educate someone else. It's just really hard to speak about this point right now during COVID times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, and with that education comes kind of a mitigation of fear because it's not, you're not teaching them how to multiply. You're teaching them how how to fix the Navigate certain things. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's, it's interesting because I've been looking at also the sources of where medical knowledge came from. And sometimes knowing how why we know how much blood someone can lose before they they die and things like that maybe not all the medical knowledge was gained from all the right places but do you think that you can make the best of the knowledge that you have with paying respect to where it came from i think that's a really good point to make and something i can draw upon is from our case-based learning from we call it cbl from cbl uh people will pull from their just past experiences like, oh, I felt this way before. Like, oh, I've seen hemolytic anemia in the hospital, this patient, you know, collapse and stuff like that. And they're able to talk about what that experience is like. And just the anecdotes really help with trying, trying to envision what these things are like, uh, I guess, making them more real to us instead of just like a case, hypothetical case. And um, now kind of going more into the person. I mean, because to me, the placebo is the craziest thing in medicine because it can sometimes fix someone better than an actual cure, like a physical idea. And I think that we're going much more towards patient-based medicine than just symptomatic, like looking, this person has X, Y, and Z, therefore A, B, and C will fix them. 
instead of now looking at, okay, how does this person feel? What do they want to do? Let's. This gets into the whole point of beneficence and non-maleficence of uh, physician's duties, right? So we want to put the patient's best interests in the context of how to treat this patient, right? It's not just treating the symptoms in ahead of us. We need to consider so, sort of social determinants, things that are they going to follow up with uh, medications that we prescribe them, for instance? Are they able to you know, even afford the medications that we want to prescribe them? Things like that. And I think that, it, I mean, you going in, interested in being in cardiothoracic surgery, you're going to be dealing with a lot of heavier uh, symptoms and the idea of the lifestyle choices people have to make. Like maybe this person's 75 years old and they can either live five, they have five years to live with this disorder that they have, or they can be attached to a robot for 20. And Right, exactly. So is that really... It's basically livelihood versus, you know, actual life remaining, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something to discuss with the patient and the family is all. Uh, and that's all think, we can do. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just interesting how that's transitioning from, I always read about this thing in the 60s called therapeutic privilege, that if someone mm -hmm. was sick, you just don't tell them. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Yeah, I think that every patient has the right to know, right? I mean, that's the whole point of dialogue between physician and patient. But once again, under the context, for instance, if they're already like, you know, 75, 80 years old and they're going, it's a difference between like a couple of months or days and such. I think there are certain cases that can be made for, you know, it's bet they can live the best life without that knowledge sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think it's always important to consider that, at least in, with the family and patient in mind. Yeah. And maybe also some of the power is in the delivery, like walking hey, in of course, with a smile yeah. on your face saying, you have stage three breast cancer is not the no. right way to go about <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> gotcha. And... Um, is being a doctor something that you want to do just for the rest of your life? Like there's no, like my grandfather is, uh, as a researcher and he's just, he's like 87 years old and he's like, I'm never stopping. And I think that's a beautiful <laughs> thing is how do you feel about that? I think I'm the exact same way actually. And, uh, the folks over at ENT at Penn, they feel the same way as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, they just seem so happy and with the privilege that they have to work with these patients that they can see themselves doing it you know, until they're forced to retire. <laughs> <laughs> forced push out. Yeah. And uh, do you, did you notice, I mean, cause you've been able to be around medical professionals in the midst of COVID. Have you noticed that they're kind of sadder because they don't get to see as many patients or are they happy because now they can hang out a little bit more on the beach or like, what, well, how do you feel? <laughs> Uh, uh, no, I love that. Uh, actually, one of my PIs, he uh, he was heading to the beach last night during our research call, so that was just funny. But um, uh, I think you're if you ask a bunch of different physicians, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. A lot of them really, really miss the personal interaction. I personally miss you know speaking to my patients, but it also I see the benefits of telehealth and you can really see a lot more patients and give them the time that they deserve. It's just may not, the quality may not be completely there. Right. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's always easier to connect with people in person. Yeah. And do you think that also with, I feel like there could be sometimes a level of intimidation or vulnerability in a clinical office where your feet aren't even touching the ground sitting on one of those hospital beds and all you have on is a gown and you have a relative stranger in the same room as you asking you all these questions. Do you think that the there's potential for almost more intimacy and more or not intimacy, but like openness over the telemedicine kind of environment? No, that's a very good point to make. I'm not going to say this is like an argument for that, but I feel like there's human beings have a very good detector for, I guess, honesty and truthfulness. And so in person, that's something that we have sort of evolved to use. We, we subconsciously employ that. And when you have that there, if you do trust your provider, then I feel like that's what will weigh more heavily than being in the comfort of your own home. But what you say is absolutely true. It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of there's two sides of the coin. There's the, the interpersonal connection right. that you can have, but it's also the comfortability that you can have at home as well. <laughs> right. Interesting. And do you think that you think we'll ever go back to, and I guess, I don't know if you're necessarily the right one to answer this question, but, uh, if we'll go back to just always doing in-person visits, or do you think there will be folks that are like, I'm never going back into the hospital for a checkup? Yeah, no, this goes back to that whole divide amongst physicians, right? I feel like that it's going to become more of a hybrid format now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure the only thing that'll change is how the, uh, office visits are going to be billed. There's probably going to be like a new telehealth billing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, kind of an offshoot of that. I remember my microbiology teacher told me that right after the influenza outbreak stopped, people stopped spitting in the streets. Like no one <laughs> was no longer were people just spitting on the sidewalk. Like it was nobody's business. Then it really came to a halt because they were convinced that caused the spread of influenza do you think that we're going to move to a world where there are some people that just will always wear masks in public? Always wear masks in public. I know that in China right now, some people are already, you know, not really enforcing wearing masks anymore. And I think that shows a good bit of what can be done if we just get control of this pandemic. It's just, you know, once we get to that point or not. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't have much faith in a lot of, us as human beings coming together and you know let's all wear masks and not fight about it yeah so far there's been a lot of pushback mm -hmm. yeah america is ingrained in debate <laughs> exactly that is exactly right yeah so it's a blessing and a curse especially in that uh territory circling back to kind of the new uh med student idea is do you have any other guidance for students that are you know what, let's, let's, let's start early. So let's say a 12-year-old just dissected a frog <laughs> and he's interested in pursuing medicine. What would you say to them? So you like dissecting frogs now? Um, <laughs> that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. Get out, get out while you still can now. Um, <laughs> if that turns out to be something that you really like to do, then, you know, consider this when you grow up but you know I, I i guess if i were that person's father i would not uh 
force it upon that person by any means. Like, oh, you should be a surgeon because you cut a frog open, right? <laughs> that cut was but, so clean. <laughs> right. But I guess that said, uh, a lot of it is up to a social support system, right? That uh, child, if he or she does choose to go into medicine, then they're going to need to rely on a lot of different people. So I would say find that support group and, um, you know, you're, you're going to need some non-medical school friends, right? Yeah. Uh, it's hard to find that balance though, but you know, uh, I actually have, this reminds me, I probably need to speak to my non-medical school friends now too, but <laughs> going off on a tangent, I'm sorry. Um, oh yeah, no problem. No problem. But you're definitely in the camp of kind of like fostering for over demanding. Yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. And I, you said something really interesting there that I think is a really important thing, especially with this kind of field of you really have to have the support of others. You can't just be like, I'm on top of the world. I am the master of my own destiny. <laughs> and I think, I think it's really important that you highlighted the support system. Let's move on to a 16-year-old in his in their honors chemistry class made the greatest precipitate in class in their chemistry <laughs> experiment what would you say to them now that they're interested in medicine chemistry is a lie it's not needed in medicine <laughs> uh, okay it seems like you really know your stuff it looks like you have a knack for you know the hard sciences here if you are considering medicine we need problem solvers and people who are able to uh handle the heavy load that chemistry usually demands. So if you're considering it, you know, keep going. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't do well, if you make a really bad precipitate, like I probably did a bunch of times, <laughs> keep going, you work hard, you'll, you'll be able to get there. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, on that, how do you feel about people that just go, they're 18 years old, they're like, I'm, my name is Garrett, I'm gonna be a doctor. And, or versus people that are like, I, and going to design purses and that's what's going to happen and then seven years down the road they're like you know the purse game is not for me i want to go back and be a doctor how do you feel about the the kind of divergent convergent tracks yeah that's really interesting we have um a lot of we call them, you know traditional and non-traditional applicants and uh it's really interesting to see i i Actually, thinking about it now, it's like a generational gap or maybe like just the difference of experiences over time. But I don't think one is better than the other. If someone knows that medicine is for them, if they have already gained the exposure needed to say, this is absolutely what I want to do, I don't think that's any different than someone who takes a different route and then says, this isn't working out for me, but something I've always kind of considered on the side was medicine. Maybe I should try my hand at that. Because in the end, they both put in the hard work. They both see what is needed for a career in medicine. And when you get there, you're all the same. One is not better than the other. I like that. I like that conclusion. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Pretty much does it for all of my questions. But do you have anything else that you want to say to the uh, general public? Uh, good luck. No. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I, I'm sorry I can't really speak too much all i can do is speculate as much as anyone else can as to what applications are like now or in the future like the other day i heard that uh amcast rolled out these robotic interviews i think that's very strange and i'm assuming that you have to pay for those as well mm -hmm. but <laughs> i think 
you will be very happy once you do get in. Uh, and the unfortunate thing that sort of blindsides most people is the hard work doesn't end once you get into medical school. It just begins. <laughs> <laughs> You're almost done starting when you get into Yeah, medical. I'm almost done starting. That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you very much, Garrett. I really appreciated uh, the interview and I'm sure the listeners will too. So, uh, yeah, thank you thank for you having very me. Thank you much for uh, joining us, both listeners and Garrett's, and uh, good luck.